Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey everyone, I'm glad you could join me today. This is kind of a bonus episode because we've just hit 30,000 listens of the podcast across all of the episodes. So I want to say a massive thank you to the community of people who are listening to Seeds and helping to spread the word about it. And that just happened to coincide with my being in Wellington for the last few days at the Philanthropy Summit 2019, which was organized by Philanthropy New Zealand. The topic of it was the future of trust, and there was about 500 people at Te Papa. It was a fantastic event, and a big shout out to Sue and Yvonne and all the other volunteers and people behind the scenes who put the summit on. Now before going, I got permission to bring along my recorder and plugged it in so that I could record some of the sessions, because I knew that the topics would be of interest. And I figured because there were eight breakout sessions going on at the same time, there would be some people who attended who would be interested in the ones that I went to. And also, the people who couldn't make it to the summit would be interested in the topics as well. So I'm going to release a few podcast episodes in the coming days so that other people can benefit from what was at the summit. Now this episode itself is dealing with investment trends and the case for impact investing. And we're going to be hearing from Rebecca Swan, David Woods, Emily Woodland, and Clive Pedley. And I'm not going to go into each of their bios, but I have put links in the show notes so that you can click in those to find them. And also I've put a link into the Impact Investing Network website, which has a lot of great information for you to discover as well. And then I got to help out facilitating with some of the questions and answers at the end of the session. One of the things I love about being a lawyer is being at the cutting edge of what is possible. And that's definitely the case with impact investing. I'm often dealing with companies that are looking to structure themselves so they're ready to receive investment, but also at the other end, helping the investors looking around at what might be a good option for them to invest in. And it's an area I'm seeing real growth in. So this whole session had a really personal edge to it for me. It was actually a really fun session because we talked about a lot of different issues and did a lot of thinking about what the future of investment might look like. I do hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, consider checking out some of the others because I've done more than 100 interviews with people doing inspiring things throughout the country. And the aim here is to build up an ecosystem of stories where we can learn from each other. Now we're going to get into this session about impact investing, and I also put in the welcome which had been said earlier in the day. This morning's theme is impact trends and the case for impact investing. So I'm going to start this morning by just a bit of give a bit of context around responsible investing and impact investing. Then I'm going to hand over to David Woods, then Clive, and then Emily. And then we're going to be joined on the stage by Stephen Moe, um, who some of you may know, and he's going to facilitate a Q&A session. So we are going to leave quite a bit of time at the end for questions. Right, sadly this is a scene that we're not unfamiliar with around the world. I'm not going to dwell on this because the purpose of uh, this week's summit is to focus on the future. But for a moment, let's imagine a world where all investors aligned their values to their investments, working with management to make change, not just 
to make money, but to improve the environment and the society that we live in. Imagine if investors directed their capital intentionally trying to find to companies that are trying to find solutions to some of the big issues in the world. Imagine if we had successfully transitioned to a low carbon economy or even to a zero carbon economy and that we could all breathe freely, extreme weather events were on the decline, species that were close to extinction were now thriving, renewable energy was the norm and there is abundance of food and water for all along with affordable housing. And these plastics shown here in this picture were no longer in our waterways and oceans around the world. And imagine that this was the norm, this beautiful idyllic setting in the Milford Sound. Imagine that all the children in New Zealand attended school and, attend and actually achieved their uh, New Zealand education standards. Imagine that there was no poverty and everybody was paid at least a living wage. Even better again, imagine if the number of youth offenders in New Zealand significantly declined and mental health improved dramatically. Now, I by, I'm by no means trying to belittle any of these really hard and complex and big environmental and social issues, but imagine the possibilities. And the good news, and perhaps the saving grace for our collective futures, is that now it's more than just good corporate citizenship. The worlds of philanthropy and investments can and are working together to provide a financial, a social and environmental outcome or return in what order, in any order that you want it. And this is done through impact investment. And this can be achieved in both the private and public markets. So I love this slide actually. It's a great context setter and it's from the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. And what it does is just kind of shows you how um, the different types of responsible investment, but also, also illustrates how it's evolved over time. So on the far left-hand side, you can see traditional investment. And this is where managers are agnostic to um, in integrating environmental, social, and governance factors, which I'm just going to uh, call ESG from here on in. And then we moved in, move into the next grey box within the, within the graph. And this is basically responsible investment and ethical investment. And this is where ESG is in integrated into the investment process. Managers are actively voting on shareholder resolutions. Um, also includes the positive application of ESG factors, thematic investment or sustainable investment. And then to the far right-hand side there, you have impact investment. Now, this is a term that's been used more in the last 12 months than it has for a collection of years in the past. Um, and we've got two types of impact investing. One is a market rate return, where you get an environmental and a social outcome, plus a financial return. And the other is con a concessionary rate of return. And this is where you get an environmental and a social outcome, but not a financial outcome. So you can have a choice as to you know, what's more important and what's more aligned to your objectives. Now, to the far right-hand side, we have here philanthropy. Now, probably my only criticism of this graph is that I'd probably rename that traditional philanthropy, because I actually really believe that a lot of you, and many of you are doing this in the room, are changing the way that you look at your granting and your gifting, and you're actually looking at making your capital and your investments and your grants work harder for you, and you're actually looking to align these to your own values and objectives to achieve greater and more sustainable results in the longer term. So let's have a look at how impact investment is defined. So the way that we think about it is that investments are made, impact investments are made with the intention to generate a positive and measurable social environmental impact alongside a financial return. 
And also another way of looking at it is that it's about directing capital to organisations, both in the public and the private space, um, companies and services who are using an entrepreneurial approach to tackle some of these big global issues that we've talked about already this morning. So what makes impact investing different? Well, there's really four things that make impact investing different. The first one is intentionality. Before I go into that though, before what we saw about the continuum of responsible investment is that it has actually evolved a lot over the time. So investors and impact investors are being far more proactive about their intention for positive impact as opposed to merely avoiding negative impacts. So intentionality has been defined in your strategy or your objectives and then the investment is found to meet these defined goals. So it's very active and very deliberate and it's doing no harm while the thought of doing good at the same time. Uh, the second part is around measurement and this is probably the most important, one of the most important aspects of impact investment. Sorry, I can't see whether my bullets are coming out or not. I'm not tall enough to see over the screen. So basically, um, this is really important about establish some, establishing some really clear KPIs around what those um, objectives are that you're trying to achieve. Um, and it's important because you want to be able to assess later on on how successful you have been relative to these objectives. So for example, if you have an objective around reducing waste, um, this could be measured around the amount of um, the volume that's been recycled or recovered and it could also be translated into maybe the number of households that have been impacted. So for example, um, 900 tonnes of recycled or recovered waste, material that was avoided as from going to the landfill, was the equivalent of the waste produced by 870 New Zealand households per year, as an example. So it's very clear, it's very transparent, you have these KPIs that you can go back to and report to your stakeholders and your communities. The third aspect, is additionality. And this is probably a little bit more harder to prove. So what we mean by additionality actually is whether the impact would have happened or not without the investment. So was capital intentionally directed to a company that is taking an entrepreneurial approach to tackling a global, a global challenge? An example of this might be water for purification. So the company's strategy might be to um, roll out water purification to the world to the world, maybe to third world country, to try and make it scalable um, and be efficient to improve the health and well-being of communities, which therefore have a greater impact, for example, on children being able to attend education. Whereas maybe a broader investment into water, maybe through a, um, say, a water index, for example. So the first example is a very intentional um, and you can get that additionality from that investment. And Emily's going to actually talk about some of the challenges of this in the public uh, listed space um, in a few moments. And then the fourth and final aspect is around returns. So sometimes there's confusion about the trade-offs, um, but it really depends again on how you've defined it. Whether it's finance first or whether it's environmental and social first, that really comes down to how you've defined it in your objectives. Um, and so long as it's uh, specific and deliberate um, and it's aligned with your, va your values and your objectives, it's fine. But it's just having that clear for you at the, at the start, whether it's finance first, environmental or social first, or both. And some of the ways that people are tying in 
KPI measurement for impact investment is around the Sustainable Development Goals. Now, Rod spoke this morning already about these, um, and many of you will be familiar with them, but it basically has helped us focus on what's required within the world to face some of these global challenges that, we're, that we have before us. And it's estimated around five to seven trillion US dollars is required to meet these goals by 2030, which is the objective of the UN. So for many impact funds or impact investors, these KPIs or SDGs, sorry, are a really great useful starting point and provide a clear starting point and a good way to measure progress. And both public and private markets have a role to play to tackle these big issues and they are complex. And some of uh, my fellow speakers this, after, well, this morning are actually going to cover this. Um, and now that I've set the scene a little bit on impact investing, where it sits in the continuum of responsible investment, um, David Woods is going to give you a different perspective um, from his angle in the world. Thank you. I don't know about a different perspective. I think impact investing through funds is a follow-on additional perspective. Uh, funds is the easiest way, or fund, that's my grammar is wrong, funds are the easiest way for most people to invest and access uh, impact investing opportunities. They're generally not designed for retail investors yet. There's been a lot of discussion in the UK and in Europe, but if you look at the funds that are out there all around the world, they have a relatively high minimum investment. So they're designed for people who are philanthropic investors or institutional investors with other people's money. They're not designed for mom and pop investors with $500 that they want to put away somewhere yet. But for most people today, looking at the world of impact investing, funds is the easiest way to go about it. Because direct impact deals, and particularly deep impact deals, if you look at Rebecca's continuum of capital, are illiquid and unlisted. The trustee says, no, your job is to maximize financial returns, so you can't invest in anything that doesn't maximize financial returns. Uh, you can't invest in anything that isn't in the public market, and even if you cross those two hurdles, it's illiquid, so you can't sell it until it matures. So a lot makes it difficult for people to invest in pure impact deals that they might want to do uh, because of the natural constraints around them, and therefore going to a fund that is set up to try and deal with that is often the easiest way to, to do it. It doesn't take away the requirement for due diligence, but it mitigates the requirement because you have a specialist fund that will do the detailed research, that will measure the outcomes that the impact investment is going to deliver on, and it will help you that the common language is, is to, put a to take a first step in that market. And there are some great examples we can look at, but uh, if you look at the way the US sector and the UK sector have developed, it's primarily been funds first, and then individual deals start to follow uh, in the wake of, of the funds. Um, a fund, you know if you, from the way you invest your KiwiSaver, you know that a fund diversifies your risk across a wider range of investments than you would be able to uh, simply by picking a set of stocks and or green bonds or anything else and deciding this is how I'm going to invest my money. So 
Funds mitigate the requirement for due diligence, don't take it away, but they allow a wider spread of impact risk. And they also, in allowing a spread of risk, probably lower your return. Not always, but probably. So you're not onto picking A2 milk or picking some other thing that may do very well indeed. You're trying to, by having a, a, a range of investments through a professional fund manager, you're trying to uh, achieve a balanced return. And one of the other issues with funds, which is a potentially a negative, particularly in environmental impact investments, is that funds have a predefined lifetime. The New Zealand, New Zealand Green Investment Finance, and I'm a director of that company, is deliberately a company, not a fund, because you're dealing with greenhouse gas emissions, you're dealing with long-term investments which may have a life of 20 or 25 years. Most funds, you have to return the funds to the uh, investor at the end of 10 years. So that mismatch and what you've seen with the, the big impact funds in the US in the last three years is more and more of them are starting up as financial holding companies, not as funds so that they don't have to sell investments at the wrong time just because the clock stopped and you've got to return the funds to the, to the original investor. In New Zealand, we've seen a big, big, we've seen quite a few and a very encouraging number of funds come up in the last two years at a regional level, at a national level, and across sectors. I was the original chair of the Impact Enterprise Fund, which was the first pure impact fund to be launched. I look at Bill Murphy's Purpose Capital, which is getting close to being launched this year, and I look at how differently they've done things and how people have progressed along um, the, the road to impact fund, uh, to more, um, to better impact funds by learning from what's gone before. You look at some of the uh, regional funds, like Rata's social impact fund, like uh, Baytrust's social impact fund, very locally focused. Um, we heard Rod Oram say this morning that issues are increasingly global, solutions are increasingly local. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. It's not always a good thing with environmental funds where we need large amounts of money invested, uh, having lots of small deals is not necessarily the easiest way to do it. Some of you may recall uh, a Mercer presentation in October last year in Wellington where they put two impact fund managers up on the platform next to each other. You had Kate Slater from RATA talking about RATA's $5 million social impact fund in Christchurch and Wellington Capital Management from Boston talking about their $2 billion climate change fund. We need both in the market, but I think that it's easier for investors who are new to impact to identify with the smaller funds because they're issues of a size they can tackle and think about, and they're not these, these huge things. Um, some of you may also have seen recently the controversy around Bill Madlashen being fired from TPG in the US where he ran the RISE Fund, which is the biggest impact fund in the world. He wasn't fired for doing anything wrong with the fund. He was fired for trying to get his son into 
Stanford in the US on a football scholarship when the son didn't play football. Uh, and the fund just decided the reputation risk was too great and he went straight away. But I think this balance between big funds and small funds, national level, regional level, and in sectors like green investment finance, the non-fund, um, it's important to help develop the overall uh, size of the sector. I also think that what we're finding internationally is the increasing size of funds and the increasing capital supply wanting to go into impact investing is stretching the definitions of impact. And you get a number of people talking about impact integrity being diluted and uh, it not being pure impact, this, this investment or that investment is not pure impact because there simply is so much capital out there. If you look at some of the green bonds being launched, both in New Zealand and overseas, there's a lot of different shades of green. I come from Ireland, we talk about the 40 shades of green. Well, you could look at green bonds the same way. Some of them really are having impact. Some of them are simply an ability to reclassify something that was going on anyway, so it doesn't meet the um, incremental or additional test that Rebecca talked about. I think that in New Zealand, we find the small uh, social funds tend to do better. I said a few minutes ago, it's because people identify with things that are closer to home. I think that's going to be increasing the case, and it's how we find this balance between the small social funds where we're able to see our dollars at work and the big ones where we still have big problems. If we look at the um, cost of regenerating the Waipa Waikato Basin in New Zealand, the total cost is over $2 billion. I don't think that that's going to be done in one single investment because it's simply going to be too big, but we're going to have to make lots of small ones and it will be a combination of bonds, direct investments, probably some funds, all sorts of ways of doing it in order to get the uh, funds in place to do what's needed to, to be done in that particular project. The same perhaps goes for some of the marine spatial planning around our coastlines. Um, we really need to, to connect some of those activities a little bit better. Um, the aquaculture and marine area is an example, I feel, um, of something where we don't have it as joined up as we should do. Uh, and when you look at New Zealand and we look at local and national, we look at small scale and big scale, one thing we do need to do is say, because we're a small country, we need to bring these things together and collaborate uh, in a different way than you can do in the US where you have much bigger capital pools. Um, I think the impact measurement tools are key, and I think, feel very strongly here that we really should try as far as possible to follow the global standards being set by the impact management project, which are followed by the Global Impact Investing Network, the UN, the IFC, the European Union, all of the big international bodies. It's very tempting to say it doesn't fit what we're trying to do here. It's often very expensive to try and follow rigorously these international standards, but let's take the international standards and drill down to what we need rather than develop 
an entirely separate way of measuring things, um, and that's something that I think is, is gradually coming together in the market here. It's important because if we ever get large deals that international investors will come into that help New Zealand and have an impact in New Zealand, then we will need to be following the same international standards as everybody else. Uh, there are many big international institutions who would love to invest in impact transactions, whether funds or direct transactions in New Zealand, but who say we can only invest a minimum of 10 million and we can only invest 5 or 10% of a deal. So that's an illustration of the, the power of the small social funds we have at around the 5 to 10 million level, but some of the bigger size transactions that are being put together and where we need to be able to have a balance for different kinds of investors. And I think one other thing that is important to think about and try and develop, in the second half of this year, Finland is president of the European Union. And there is a big move to move the entire 27, now 27 countries in the EU, towards social outcomes-based contracting. We've talked about that in New Zealand. It fits very much with the psyche of the well-being budget and with that approach to society and the economy. But it really will move impact investing considerably further forward if we have a government uh, philosophy of being willing to pay for outcomes as a way of moving things forward. Shamubil said earlier this morning, we don't pay enough tax. Well, if we don't pay enough tax directly, government can't fund many of these things, but government often can say, if it is funded independently, we will pay for outcomes that save us money. And I think that's a, a very important philosophy for us to, to go forward with. I'm going to stop there, but I'm going to make just one point that occurred to me when we, were put it, when we were putting this together. All of us in this room are probably impact investors in the loose definition. Most of you here own a house, and if you're not from Auckland, that's not primarily for financial gain. You own a house to have an impact, an intentional impact on the social environment for your family, to have better health, to have your children in a stable education atmosphere, and for you to be able to work easily. So it's not primarily for financial gain, it's for that combination. And if you think of impact investing in that sense, it's all relatively easy. But my job was just to talk about funds and why we see funds more than other things. And now I give way to, to Clive Pedley. Kia ora A few of you know me, and uh, you will know that I'm a bit of an agitator at the best of times, and uh, I plan to do so again this morning. What I, there's a slight typo here. I'm actually talking about private market projects. So just to qualify, we've talked about investment grade, and we'll talk some more. Uh, Emily will shine some more light on that. We're talking about private projects in the market uh, that are not enlisted companies, but in fact in projects that will deliver both financial and social or environmental returns. And to qualify my views on this, for most of the last two decades I've been involved in uh, advising 
social purpose organisations who are accessing philanthropy for their purpose and their mission. And it has been out of that experience and understanding the greater opportunities where traditional philanthropy can be complemented by impact investment that uh, I have become more involved in this space. So, because uh, you can't quite see over this, can you? It's not quite perfect. But anyway, we'll give it a crack. So, the thing I want to, I guess, qualify at the start is uh, in this space, we are seeing on a regular basis seven, eight, and nine figure deals being developed. So, to my mind, they are a scale of investment that is relevant to most of the people in this room. The challenge is developing to a point where the financial and social and environmental returns are ready for due diligence and then can be invested in appropriately. So what sort of opportunities are we talking about in particular? Uh, oh, okay, well that's one way to do it. All right, so uh, one of the messages that I've received clearly from the institutional investment community, I'm particularly interested in their views when it comes to private projects is what sort of deals they want to do. They look uh, at a lot of the equity deals that are available and they are, because of the rules that go with their money, largely uninvestable. And some of the messages that we've been uh, receiving and, and I guess the challenges uh, being tasked with is please develop some scale, suitably risked debt and fixed interest products so that we can participate in the impact investment environment. To, to our view, looking at the social private uh, market projects as well as the environmental private projects, creating, uh, creating and designing debt-based products is a really significant uh, opportunity. Now, clearly traditional philanthropy is the only solution for a wide variety of the world's wicked problems. There's just no other way around it. Uh, but equally, there are opportunities for a, um, I guess, a market-based approach where there are both financial and social and environmental returns that can be generated where private equity can get involved. The reality is, at a societal level, our aspirations are fantastic. We want more of the good things, less of the bad things. But our traditional revenue channels of government contracts and philanthropy and trading as a social purpose sector can't keep pace with that. There's just not enough funds to do all of the things that as a society we want to do. The irony of that is that we're surrounded by an ever-increasing uh, private equity market that has an increasing social conscience, and so that is the opportunity for impact investment. So uh, what we're seeing is that uh, one of the best opportunities in the private uh, market at the moment are debt-based projects which have a strong asset backing or a strong guarantor element to them that allow uh, private, and, private and institutional investors, depending on how the, uh, the deal is designed and structured, to participate in, uh, in an impact investment. And I'll just comment quickly there on regards to the returns conversation. So you all have investment portfolios and you have balanced investment portfolios. And so at one end of your portfolio you have higher returns and the other end you have more conservative returns. And so a market return is at all ends of that spectrum. So if part of your money is in cash and bonds, then part of your money is low yield return. So you can get a market return that competes in that space. That is a really sound social impact debt investment. Similarly, if part of your portfolio is at the higher equity-based market, well, there are opportunities for impact investment there. So you can't really lump a one-return conversation for all impact investments. It depends which part of the investment portfolio uh, you're talking about. One of the uh, 
conversations uh, I often have with um, funds, uh, trusts, uh, and high net worth individuals uh, who are looking to get involved in impact investment, and, and we're talking about outside of funds and outside of listed stocks, is the, the challenges that go with that. And we uh, will often try and talk to people about the idea of co-investment, which I think is incredibly important. Again, kudos to Bill Murphy and, and all of the people, Terry, all the people involved in that initiative and what that's doing and what it's allowing people to co-invest uh, and where everyone doesn't have to duplicate the same skill sets around due diligence and impact reporting and the likes. But it's really important here to, I guess, uh, qualify that, that we there really are two types of impact investors and they, and they have very different drivers and needs. So the finance first uh, investors are great to have in a, in a co-investment environment because they bring a really strong commercial acumen to the table. And so uh, in, in projects that we've worked on, uh, they might have be quite demanding for as, uh, to the impact first investors who just want to get on and see the world start changing, but they bring a really a great acumen and great discipline to the process. Similarly, the impact first investors drive the finance first investors a little bit crazy because they're really wanting to nail down, so just exactly how are we going to determine that we're doing the right thing here, even if the financial return is not tied to the impact, an impact first investor will really bring that discipline and determination to ensuring that we understand what the theory of change here is, we understand that it's evidenced, we understand the measurement framework we're going to use, and we understand how we are going to consistently determine that we're having the impact that we've intended from the outset. And that's really, really critical. Uh, we, as a sector, loosely, the, the risk of impact washing is very real. And so this idea of co-investment and bringing these different preferences to the table does help address some of that. And uh, it creates opportunities as a co-investor for you to be involved in things that you just wouldn't be able to be involved in otherwise. Funds achieve that as well, so that's uh, important. I think I'm going to, um, so I'm just going to have a little free flow here. This room uh, and this conference can do a lot to the impact investment market in New Zealand. And to my mind, there are two key critical things that this collective can do to really lift uh, the whole impact investment movement. One is that we are somewhat reliant from a deal flow perspective on the social purpose sector lifting their game and bringing to the table really good high quality deals. And uh, there are some people in this room who are doing that heavy lifting right now. But it's hard yards uh, and it's largely not being done at scale because there's not clarity in the social purpose sector that the money is there if they do the work. So one of the things that I think needs to be resolved is that both at the public and private level, impact investors need to qualify how much impact investment they have got for the right deals at the right returns. And if that was presented, my view is that that would motivate the social purpose sector significantly to do more work faster to get better deals on the table. When we presented to a REA um, members event in Auckland about 18 months ago, now you've got to remember the responsible investment portfolio in Australasia is now over $1 trillion. Uh, and we presented on impact investment, what it is, how it could work and so on. And there was a live polling going on amongst these institutional members. And the live poll said 
the, was basically how much would you put into impact investment, the assumption being that deals, right deals were on the table, and the response, 60% were in that 3 to 5% range. So there is a conversation to be had that the impact investment market capacity in New Zealand and Australia is somewhere between 20 and $50 billion. That's quite remarkable, that's quite transformational if it's uh, placed in the right way. So qualifying that is one thing. The other thing I would just quickly say is one of the big barriers, again, bringing deals to the table is the investment readiness process that the social purpose sector has to work through. Uh, if we look at the more mature market, being the UK market, there's a lot of funds being available in investment readiness grants, and that's been truly transformational and speeding up the size and scale of that market, and we don't have that here. One of the challenges, I guess, for this market has been an over-reliance or a ever-wishingness that the government will step in and make things happen. I think we just kind of have to accept that that's just not going to happen. And if we look at investment readiness finances, it's not going to happen anytime soon. So let's just deal with that. And I think the philanthropy market can do a great thing in oiling that part of the engine and coming up with some sustainable, practical solutions to uh, grant and invest into the investment readiness process to aid the social purpose sector to bring the right deals to the table. Yeah, rent over. Okay, um, so that's really just what I wanted to say on that whole section. These buttons aren't working so well. I just want to pick up on what David is saying. I do agree that the impact management project is, without doubt, the, the lead candidate. Uh, but when it comes to some of the more modest private market project opportunities, uh, the impact measurement process can be very daunting. So whilst I don't condone not doing what David said, I ultimately agree, I do think sometimes at the more modest end of the spectrum, and, a, and again in a private project, it's really important as, a, as an investor uh, or as a, a provider of a deal to focus on what your theory of change is, how it's evidenced, and what you will use to determine the impact that the project will have. And so sometimes these things can work, and I agree, where we can adhere to international norms so much better, but I think sometimes uh, we need to start with more modest, uh, accessible measures of impact that make it uh, a little easier to get going. And again, if the finance first investor and the impact first investor can say, yes, this uh, will result in our intentions of getting that blended return, then we're off to a good start. So perhaps there is a stepping stone point in the impact measurement process to uh, getting to the impact management project standards. Uh, and again, as uh, Rebecca has said, it, as, as investors, it's important for you to determine what your imperatives are. Now, you know, I have many conversations where uh, philanthropic trusts and foundations uh, have to tell me that unfortunately our, our SIPO doesn't allow for us to do impact investment and so on, or it's not up for review for five years, or this, that, or the other. And look, come back to your mission. What is your purpose? So we are really fortunate that there are some leaders in this space who are setting aside funds, uh, whether it's from some initial grant money that's set aside, whether it's a percentage of their portfolio. I think uh, if the philanthropic foundations could, could consider what the institutional uh, investors are considering and that three to five percent of our investment portfolio would be made available for the right quality of impact investments, uh, we'd really kind of start to see some serious shift. It would put a lot more pressure back on the social purpose sector to bring those deals to the table, but it would be a qualified opportunity and the work would go in. So uh, 
that's something for each of us to consider when we think about what, where our investments are being placed. Uh, impact due diligence, uh, I'm really just I'm going back to the investment readiness piece. Uh, again, I would just really encourage this sector in New Zealand, we talked about before how small the market is, leverage off each other. I mean, again, I look at the work that Bill's doing and there's an opportunity there for several investors to use one due diligence process, one due diligence actor in the group of investors. Um, it's the same at the impact me uh, measurement and reporting end. We don't have to duplicate everything. So we're, again, that's the beauty of a co-investment environment. Um, but do just think about how you might, uh, how demanding you might be and how efficient you could be when you're looking at uh, impact investment due diligence. I'm going to just rush through this next thing, but um, the key thing right now, I think, is that um, the impact first investors have uh, probably got the best opportunity to speed things up right now. Uh, the, um, the, the level, there are not, a, you could basically place your funds with equity, debt, and fixed interest. The re genuine, significant fixed interest impact investment opportunities are somewhat limited right now. They just are. We'll get there, but at the moment, there's, there's really not a lot. And similarly, the equity side is really, really challenging. Uh, because of the risk profiles typically attached and the scale of investment that's available. So um, I'm a big fan of the whole debt side of things and how we, I mean, you can structure debt in a lot of different ways. So I think uh, that there's a really big opportunity there as philanthropic investors to, to really start sticking your noses into that space and to really influence and bring on board the finance first investors with you. And that just relate, allows an opportunity for where uh, capital from the, uh, from the client uh, philanthropy, uh, grants, patient capital, impact first investment, and then finance first investment to be these layers that can contribute to some really transformational projects. I'll leave it there. I know I'm over time, and uh, I really want to hear what Emily's got to say. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a great privilege to be here all the way from Hong Kong. Um, I've had the pleasure of speaking to some of you already, but I'm looking forward to expanding the conversation a little bit more. Um, I'm going to reiterate and unpack some of the really uh, important points that have already been made by my esteemed panelists over here. Um, I want to start with the question about private market offerings in general. Um, and as we've kind of presented already, can be a little bit challenging for some investors um, to allocate particularly their entire portfolio to it at this point. Um, private market projects, they can be a little bit fragmented, can be a little bit small in size. Sometimes the due diligence that's required around private market projects can be very, very intensive, and that can raise transaction costs, particularly when it comes to the fixed costs of a project relative to the size of the original investment. Um, sometimes the illiquidity and the risk profile just doesn't meet your present mandate. Um, and makes it quite difficult from an asset allocation perspective. Some of you may just be a little bit too early in your impact investment journey, and it may just be a little bit of a bridge too far at this juncture. So this is causing a few issues with scaling the impact investment market to where it really needs to get to in order to, challenge some, in order to address some of our most pressing global challenges. So 
This presents the question of whether more can really be done to provide targeted positive investments in liquid public markets for mainstream investors who may have aligned values and want to enhance their asset allocation options without compromising on their returns. And this is relevant to many of you here today in this session who currently rely on your investment portfolios in order to fund your grant projects. So we have the potential to complement private market offerings with public market offerings to mobilize far greater assets in the right direction. So what do we think the scope for this kind of investment might be? Well, market, market predictions for the size of the impact investment um, market range from around 500 billion US dollars to around 1 trillion by 2020. Quite fortunately, the Global Impact Investing Network in April of this year published a new report suggesting we've actually already reached over 500 billion US dollars. So we're actually well on track at current growth rates to reach the higher end of this originally predicted range. The GIN survey in 2018 um, found, not surprisingly, that the majority of these offerings were in private equity or private debt. But public equity was actually the third largest at 14% of assets. It was also the fastest growing asset allocation in that space. So if you're looking at 14% of a trillion dollars, you're looking at a $140 billion plus public equity opportunity. And we're certainly not there yet in terms of the opportunity set that's out there. So, the question is for you as potential investors who may be a little bit further, um, not quite so far along in your journey at the moment and maybe looking to see what more you can do with your existing liquid market portfolios, is what really should I be looking for in this space in a public market opportunity? So some of the concepts that Bex introduced earlier um, are really relevant to this debate. And the biggest question is the one about additionality. So you have purists out there in the impact investment market who believe that it's not an impact investment if it doesn't have additionality. This question of whether my capital really makes an incremental difference, would that positive impact have happened if my capital hadn't been put to work in that project or that investment? So this is something that people struggle with conceptually when it comes to public markets because if a company is already listed or a bond has already been issued, the company already has that capital in place and all you're doing is trading that in the secondary market. So my capital, is it really making an incremental difference when it comes to the additionality question? Now, if your mandate has to be in liquid investments, let's say, you can't 100% go into the private market just yet. Can you look at this in a different way? And we're of the opinion that additionality in that case can take a slightly different form, and that can be through two main ways. That is through either aligning yourselves with a company who has enterprise additionality in that their actual business model is centered around a mission statement that incorporates making some sort of positive change to a global challenge. And also, you have the potential to make real change-making engagement to improve corporate practices. So those are two ways that you can actually argue that you can have additionality through public markets. So the question that many of you might have on your lips is, 
well, how do I find something that is of high integrity and something that's really, really true to label? As has been touched on by some of my panelists members already, impact investment is a very popular buzzword right now. And it's giving rise to a number of solutions out there with varying levels of integrity. If we want to be discerning about the choices that we make in this space, we need to really look out for two very, very important things. The first is that it's important to look out for strong evidence of intentionality. So two things. Was the fund itself, or the opportunity itself, created with the intent of making positive change? Or was it simply uh, tweaked or rebadged or relabeled or remarketed version of an existing offering? Was there an existing offering out there that decided to just go and tick off a few sustainable development goals and then call that impact? So we need to really dig beneath the detail and actually ask ourselves the question. Furthermore, is the investee company's business model and mission statement actually centered around solving a global challenge? Or is it simply actually just a side effect of their operations? And when you're talking about public market companies, it's very rare to find businesses that are pure plays in some of these sectors. And more often than not, you're finding diversified companies, and some of these companies might be 90% in fossil fuels and 10% in renewable energy. So you have to really weigh up where your hard lines are about what your cutoffs are for exposures to different types of indices, because the chance of finding pure plays in public markets is a lot more challenging than it would be if you were just doing a private market project. Secondly, and this has also already been discussed, does that particular offering have a credible and sincere effort to measure and report its impact? Now, obviously, we don't have all the answers to these questions yet. These are very much still a work in progress by various initiatives. We've talked about the need to try and find some sort of common language or terminology or standardized approach across markets, which would really, really help in terms of scaling the impact investment market to where it needs to get to. But the point is the effort and the intention to do so really needs to be there, and that needs to be something that you're looking for when you analyze the potential offerings open to you. So what typical features might a public market offering contain that could be interesting for you? Well, first of all, you need to find thematics which resonate with your particular values, and that can mean different things to different people. So, for some people, climate change and environment might be more important. For other people, there might be social elements which are more aligned with your values and your mandate. But the fact is, the possibility is out there to invest in each of these things, but you need to find a thematic which resonates with you. And that can be different for everyone. Typically, the more true to label uh, an opportunity is in the public market space, the more questions you have to ask about portfolio concentration in terms of the number of um, investments that fund or opportunity is making. Typically, the higher the impact of the investee company that you require, the higher the portfolio con concentration is going to be and the broader the geography you need to consider, which I appreciate can be challenging for some of the people in this room that really are more focused on creating a very localized impact when it comes to their, uh, their investment efforts. 
But if you want to find something true to label that is in a pure play company, that uh, has a good impact, that also presents a, a good fundamental investment opportunity that provides you with good investment returns, you might need to start thinking about something that is more concentrated in nature and potentially more broadly geographically diversified. So this, you're probably looking at a small number of components to the portfolio, which is, you know, it should be no more than 50, really, um, if, you, uh, if you want it to be genuinely true to label. So there are some offerings out there in the public markets that have labeled themselves as impact and still have hundreds or thousands even of investments in that portfolio. And it's up to you to really question how intentional and how additional the business models of those investments actually might be and whether it truly fulfills your criteria and your values. Above all, it has to be a long-term and, and low turnover approach. The very nature of our global challenges at the moment demands the need to think a little bit more long-term than perhaps the current short-term obsession in financial markets as it stands at the moment. And we need to align our investment practices with our long-term outlook and prospects. And that is really crucial when you are choosing an investment manager to take on this journey with you. Um, that's pretty much everything that I wanted to say today. Hopefully, we've given you a good overview of where the impact investment market stands at the moment, some of the opportunities and challenges that, uh, that it presents. We wanted to leave plenty of time for questions because we thought there would probably be quite a lot of questions. Um, with that, I'm going to turn you over to Stephen, who's going to facilitate our Q&A session. Thanks very much. I think I'm here because I love to ask questions, and I'm going to help to facilitate our next time. But before we do that, um, I was talking with the panelists, and they said, we want to make this interactive. We want to make it um, something that everyone can um, participate in. So I, I think it's awesome that Te Papa knew what we were talking about, don't you? Look at the pad in front of you, and look at the top. What has it got written there? It says head plus heart. And I think in some ways that kind of summarizes what we're talking about here, isn't it? We're talking about something that's more than just the head about the financial return. We're also talking about the heart of what's actually going on. So before we get into some questions, and I'm really keen to hear what you have, um, I'd love it if you could turn to the person next to you, and I'd like you to summarize your understanding of impact investing in two words. All right, in two words. And this is very quick. I only want you to be talking for 20, 30 seconds max. Okay, go for it. All right, so there's some good discussions starting there, I can tell. That's awesome. So if I could draw your attention back to the front. Um, I, I'm sure that we could, we could get going and there would be fruitful conversations from now on. Um, but I want to draw us back as a group um, and I, I have a, a couple of questions just to kick us off, and then I'd love to hear from you, from the audience, if you have questions for any particular person or for the panel in general. Um, but it, it's been an amazing overview that we've got, and fortunately we've got quite a bit of time now to also 
have this back and forth. Um, but the question, uh, the initial question I have is just really macro level thinking about where are we at. And in particular, um, I want to use a, a picture, a word picture of a book. So if we're looking at impact investing as a book, are we at the stage of we're looking at the title of the book? Are we talking about the introduction? Are we into chapter one? Or are we kind of in the middle of the book? And I'm really keen, um, Emily, just given you've come from overseas, just to understand a little bit of your perspective, particularly, you know, to put it simply, what's the vibe? What's going on in Hong Kong? What's going on overseas? And where do you place us in the, um, the scheme of the history of impact investing? Is this working? Um, it's a really great question because it varies considerably across the globe. So certain jurisdictions are much more sophisticated in their approach to impact investing than, than others. Um, I would say um, the conversation is most advanced in Europe um, and actually um, impact investment is being approached with a reasonable level of sophistication in, in Europe and um, they're actually um, asking really high integrity questions around impact measurement, around additionality, around intentionality and um, I would say a lot of the efforts there are really quite credible. Um, I would say the, with other areas across the globe we're much closer to the introduction of the book um, in terms of still finding our feet. Um, it's funny actually because in the United States um, you find that ESG integration, obviously a slightly different approach to, to responsible investment, is, is quite behind the curve relative to say Europe, but actually impact investment, they've, they've, they've sort of jumped a step and actually impact investment is actually growing a lot quicker than, uh, uh, than uh, ESG integration is generally. Um, when you start talking about Asia, um, I'll start with Australia and New Zealand first. Um, I think there's, there's a reasonable effort to um, institute some impact investment when it comes to small private market efforts across Australia and New Zealand. I think there's, there's pockets of activity out there that are doing some really good work. Um, but I think we're still, we're still challenged to get scale in that at this stage. And mm. you know, I think New Zealand in general just sort of lends itself to, to slightly smaller, more fragmented um, efforts in that, in that respect. Um, Asia, um, outside of Australia and New Zealand, is uh, for somebody who sits in Hong Kong, um, it's, uh, it's, the conversation is very, very much just starting. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're still trying to get green bonds right. Um, and um, what, but what I think is very interesting around Asia is um, that if you can prove a, a good business case for something, um, things tend to catch on a lot quicker in Asia than they do in the rest of the world. So I suspect the growth trajectory in Asia will be much, much faster than it has been in the rest of the world and that it will probably catch up very, very quickly. And the conversation just in the last couple of years, particularly in Hong Kong, has gone from zero to 100. Mm. Just, just talking about green bonds and ESG integration. So we're not there yet, but I'm optimistic that, um, especially with some of the generational wealth transfers that are taking place in China, mm. I'm, I'm confident that those conversations are going to be accelerating soon. Well, that's excellent. Thank you. Um, I want to ask the same question to our other three panelists. So Clive, David, and Rebecca, you know, based in New Zealand, what's your feeling about where we're at in our context here in Aotearoa? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, 
I broadly agree with what Emily's saying, um, with perhaps two variations on it. I think that we do take a serious and disciplined approach in New Zealand, and we're very much learning and trying to see what's gone on elsewhere and what works for New Zealand. The fact that it works well in the UK or in the US doesn't necessarily translate into it working well here. So I think we're beyond the table of contents, but we're not as far into the book as some other areas of the world. We don't yet have a millennial population uh, pushing us older people to invest differently. We don't have the, the dynamic that exists particularly in Germany and Holland of younger people saying that I'm going to get a financial return is a given, but what else are you going to give me? And what you see in New Zealand is philanthropic investors tend to be more proactive about saying, you know, our purpose and our mission is to do good. How can we do this in a financial context? Institutions come along, they're reactive, and they say, well, our younger investors are pushing, so what can you show us an impact? Um, and that's starting to develop and starting to get further along. And to Emily's point of scale in New Zealand, yes, we're small, but the big thing that I think we can do here is to learn how to do replicable deals, the wash, rinse, and repeat. The most successful deal that the Green Investment Bank in the UK did in the years of its existence before it was sold to Macquarie was LED lamps from streetlights from municipalities. Same deal everywhere. You just went to the municipality and they did it. So they did, I think, 40 different deals, more or less the same in small-scale municipality-level applications. And if we could learn to do that well here, to collaborate so that we do the deal once, whether it's in Bay of Plenty or Auckland or somewhere else, and can then do it elsewhere according to populations, I think that would help us show a way to lead the world in some of this. You also, just as a, a last aside, you have uh, David Parker's mission to China a couple of weeks ago, coming back and saying one of the things we can do in environmental impact investing is teach the Chinese how to structure the deals. Now, that may be a politician talking, but I certainly think there's the opportunity. Uh, I would just add that um, if we talk about impact investment in its purest form, being a blended return, I think in some ways in New Zealand we're in the middle of the book because you can create uh, cultural context that would show blended return investment of resources have been going on for centuries in one form or another. So in that regard, this is the latest version of that we're framing. Um, so I would make that comment. Uh, I'd also just make the comment that I think, uh, so in the modern context, I think we're at the, we are in the early, cha early chapter, if not the first chapter, and one of the things that's holding us back is we're waiting for the story at the end of the chapter to be, and then the government stepped in and provided this great springboard for us, like it did with Big Society Capital, and yeah, well, I've said what I think about that. So I think we just need to get on with the next chapter. There are other ways to make this work and grow. Okay, so from my point of view, um, I'm going to put my client hat on. And I think the different parts of the market that we deal with are at different stages in the book. So I think, you know, at the very start of my presentation, I talked about wouldn't it be wonderful if all investors aligned their mission and value to their investments? I think we're still a long way from that actually happening here. I think there's a lot of intent to want to do it, and there are some people in the room that are doing it very well. 
um, but there are many who are a bit apprehensive to start that journey. So, so in that very basic kind of concept of responsible investment, how where impact investing has almost evolved from, we're at various stages in the book. And then for um, institutional investors, they're, they're not really talking about impact investment at all, and I mean in the traditional institutional investor space, whereas um, the likes of many of you in the room are actually uh, leading that quite substantially, mainly in the private market space. So there's a lot happening in the private market space, and there are some institutional investors other than philanthropists who are doing that as well, but each person is, or each sector is almost at a different stage of the book. And then I think there's some part of the retail market that are actually really hungry for um, you know, they're, you know, who are very passionate about some of these massive, big, complex E and S issues in the world, and they would actually love to be able to direct their capital directly to an impact fund that was intentionally solving some of the world's biggest problems. So I think we're all the different kind of aspects of the market are kind of at different stages, which is great as well from a learning and um, sharing point of view. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's interesting to think in pictures sometimes, you know, is the book on the shelf? Is it on the table? Are people reading it? Um, I think what we'll do is open it up to some questions now. I think there's a roving mic, but I don't know exactly how this is going to work. So maybe um, if you have a loud voice, you could simply um, stand and ask your question. But does anybody have a question that they'd like to ask? Yep. Why don't you do the mic? Yeah. Thank you. How does that sound? Okay. Um, just, uh, sorry, just have myself up to the floor. Um, the, the minister yesterday in the Pohini uh, made specific mention of um, the role in the housing sector. Um, and that's the big problem here in New Zealand, we all know that. Uh, yeah, I think Chabobiel referred to our high rates of rheumatic fever because of poor housing. Um, just wondering your, your thoughts, and um, I don't expect an answer from oh, everyone on the panel, but maybe Clive, you might be interested in this one specifically, but um, I, I see the impacts of investment in housing as being very positive. So um, maybe Emily might want to comment also, are there ways to do some impact investing in the housing sector that uh, there are some models overseas perhaps uh, perhaps where there's a pooled approach to investing through uh, to spread the risk of investing in social housing across the spectrum of providers. Um, and I suppose in Hong Kong the housing market's gone quite crazy, so there's a bit of an issue, there's issues there too, so maybe some solutions that might have arisen out of that. Just for an impact investor to have, uh, and a philanthropic investor to have some sort of impact in that particular problem we have with in New Zealand. Uh, sure. So. So one of the challenges um, has been um, that the social and affordable housing conversation has been very confusing in recent years. Uh, and from an impact investor perspective, it's quite hard to know what position to take because the markets, the, the need is clear. Again, there's a huge delineation between emergency, social, and affordability. They're just massive differences. Um, so the government's position in this from an impact investment perspective uh, is challenging, I think the opportunity is there. I reflect on an, uh, an, I reflect on an opportunity that has uh, come to us recently, which is just a really simple situation where Marae is a piece of land where 30 dwellings can be built. The numbers are just straightforward, and it just needs an injection of capital for a period of 10 years 
and it's going to deliver some incredible affordable and social housing outcomes. So, so it's a small project, it's some millions of dollars, but not tens of millions of dollars. So th at those levels, I think there are some really cool, exciting projects that can be invested in, and they're sound because they're asset-backed, they're debt-based, they're straightforward, you design and deliver a good deal, but at big scale, it's, yeah, it's a real challenge. Um, but I think part of the challenge for that is because it, social and affordable and emergency get wrapped up together some or especially social and affordable and you know some big development has got so much of market so much of affordable so much of where do you where do you go with that as an impact investor it's a real challenge so i think the the real immediacy of impact opportunities are more of the bespoke deals and they are around and they are local um, the bigger deals are, are a challenge um, yeah great thank you so there were some other questions i think do you mind just having that pass back maybe, or um, that would be great. And while the mic's going on, I have a, another question. Um, there was a report that came out from Akina Foundation about a month ago um, looking at structuring for impact. And one of the things that's concluded in there is that, well, it talks about legal structures, basically, that there's no legal vehicle for social enterprise. In, in particular, no way for social enterprises to necessarily enshrine their mission in their constitution. And I'm just wondering if um, maybe one or two of you could reflect on that in thinking in particular about this idea that when you're investing, part of the due diligence has to be on what's the mission and how is it enshrined. And I'm just wondering if you could reflect on that in the New Zealand context. And, and I guess if you're an investor coming in, what are you looking for as the sign that it's a go-ahead, it's a green light, when there's no way, there's no mechanism right now that people have to enshrine their mission? It's a lawyer asking a question about a legal recommendation. It is, yes, yes. <laughs> I think the reaction to that report has been interesting because it's been very mixed between people saying, yes, a separate legal structure is needed for exactly the reasons you outlined, so that the, the mission can be enshrined because the existing uh, limited liability corporation, charitable trust, other oppor opportunities are too uh, narrow. On the other side, there's people saying our social enterprises in New Zealand are too much small s, cap sorry, capital S, small e, instead of the other way round, and what's everybody moaning about? We can just get on with it. The B Corporation concept is also becoming more and more popular in New Zealand, and people who were critical of the Akina report tended to, to point to companies like Patagonia and uh, Danone, who are B Corporations. And what they sort of left out of that point is that by being a B Corporation, you have said, when benefit legislation is in place in my country, I will move to a different corporate model because it allows more flexibility and more ability to do things in line with mission and values and not simply in the interest of the shareholders. So I think that, in, in, that report reflects a real need we need to address, um, but it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Mm. I just like to add, I think that there's a challenge for us from a New Zealand psyche perspective when it comes to social enterprise, and this especially is uh, from the philanthropy side of the table as well. So one of the fundamentals of a social enterprise is if it goes really, really well, there's some private pecuniary gain involved. Uh, and the debate around Eat My Lunch was a classic example of how New Zealand was really just fundamentally challenged by the whole idea where on one hand, 
here's an organisation that received grants and donations and volunteers, but on the other hand, it was a social enterprise that ended up selling a significant amount of equity to a corporate, which created some private pecuniary gain. And it was just, for us as Kiwis in our egalitarian nature, it was really a perplexing, challenging thing. But similarly, those types of entities, which can genuinely solve uh, high-impact issues, uh, they can't access the type of capital that the philanthropy market could provide where there is, in fact, mission alignment because of the rules that we have around how we use philanthropy. So it's a really challenge, a challenging situation, but I think that we each individually and then collectively need to ask ourselves, if someone can solve a really serious problem, is it wrong that there is some private pecuniary gain involved? I mean, it's the same as investing in the public markets. I mean, ultimately, there are shareholders who are going to receive dividends. There are shareholders who are going to receive their capital value will increase. Directors are being paid. It's the same argument. So why is it a challenge in a social enterprise context? But I think as Kiwis, we've got a real... We struggle with this. So I think we've got some growing up to do in our thinking about that. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like paradigm shifts happening in thinking of the old ways. If you want to do good, you start a charity. And if you want to make money, you start a business. And it's very much a paradigm of that's the way, whereas the new paradigm maybe is this actually combining profit and purpose. Um, I'd like to go to the next question in, in the room. Thank you. Thank you. Lindsay Wright from Community Trust South. And I'd like to ask a more specific question about the private market. So I guess it starts with you, Clive. But I'm interested in the challenge. It's, it's not a dilemma, it's a trilemma between being part of a perpetual trust, which we are duty-bound to keep going, concessional returns, and what's an acceptable level of a concessional return, balanced against the turnover of trustees and keeping that vision going. Uh, how do you maintain that long-term vision? Because you can write it in a SIPO, that can be changed. You can write it in a strategic plan, that can be changed. And I see that impact investment is a long-term uh, commitment. So how do you balance that commitment against locking in future trustees to something that maybe they don't want to be a part of? And so one question, how do we on-sell to the future? Gosh, that's a really easy question, isn't it? <laughs> in a voluntary capacity, I've just, um, I am the chairman of Te Awa Community Foundation, which is the newest of the community foundations in New Zealand, and we're just writing our investment policy right now, and our trust deed, and what are the things we enshrine, and so on, and, and trying to ascertain, like, how do we establish both protocols as well as a culture of this entity, this philanthropic entity, that will survive when, there are, when none of us are here? And I think that kind of goes to the heart of what you're saying. Well, I would, my, so having that voluntary hat on and then having my market involvement hat on, I would just say that uh, you have a spread portfolio, you have some low risk, uh, low return elements in there, bonds and cash. If you can ascertain, I mean, with the models that I'm seeing at the moment, there are some really advanced ones, and Terry's doing a great job there with Bay Trust and the stuff that, that Bill's doing. There are some new players recently, Foundation North is allocating some money to have some learning exercises, an impact investor. And people are kind of moving towards this whole idea of, well, maybe it would be appropriate for us to have 2 to 5% of our portfolio in impact investment if it met these conditions. Concessionary return is relative, uh, so I don't think it's a, it is or it isn't, it depends where what, it depends where you're taking the money out of in your investment portfolio. Are you taking it from the low yield end or the high yield end? So 
I would, I would just think that the proof, that the key thing seems to be when I talk to the key agitators, we've just got to get a bunch of deals done. If people see that good deals get done, that they pay the returns, that they have the impact, then this whole thing will normalise and success will breed success. So I would just say to you, make some brave decisions now, create some benchmarks around we're going to move from 2 to 5% of investment and impact over the next X years and let the evidence speak for itself. And if it does, then your future trustees should continue. Mm. Sorry, just to add to that, I think um, the other thing is, is that you could turn it on its head and actually we've thought about, you know, you're talking, Clive, about where you take it from your investment portfolio, but maybe our investment portfolios aren't structured the right way. Maybe the paradigms change, just like we've talked about social enterprise and business, and maybe we need to think about our asset allocation in terms of perhaps the operational costs of the trust and perhaps the impact investment part of the trust and the traditional investment part of the trust, you know, maybe we need to think about things in a slightly different way. And if we realign the objectives to where we're going in the future, maybe it removes some of those conflicts of the past. That's great, thank you. If the mic could make its way organically to that person over there, but I'm gonna ask a question while that happens. Um, Emily, I'm curious about something that you said, which was about impact measurement. And what I'd love to know is let's say in five years or 10 years, what sort of a report is gonna become more standard for people to be seeing? Um, well, I firmly believe that you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were asking that question about financial statements. And that got to a point where it had been standardized. Um, and I do believe in the next five to 10 years, we are going to see mm -hmm. a similar thing happen with impact. Um, at the moment, what you're finding is there's sort of one or two metrics that, that people are generally reporting on, which are quite easy to report on, and, and that just needs to be developed a little bit further. And there, there are a few different sort of initiatives out there and efforts that are ongoing to try and standardize that language. Um, and um, as we alluded to in, in our presentation, there does seem to be a bit of a forerunner in that, which is the Impact Management Project. Um, but, um, you know, some people are trying to use the sustainable development goals to, um, to articulate that, but the challenge with the sustainable development goals is that they weren't really developed with the corporate in mind. They were really developed more for governments, NGOs, uh, much more from a strategic top-down perspective. So it's hard for a company to shoehorn itself into that from a bottom-up perspective when it wasn't really designed for that purpose. Um, and it doesn't necessarily lend itself very well to um, developed market geographies in particular. Um, so I'm not sure, even though that does seem to be the tool of choice for some people, particularly in Europe right now, I, I'm not convinced that that will be the long-term winner. Um, but, but I do think there's a few other credible opportunities out there that with a bit more time will become a little bit more standard and, and that this, this question will become a second nature to us in, in, within a decade as, mm. as just financial reports. Mm, thank you. David, Could did you have a... just, just yeah. add to that? Because I think you, you talked about reporting, mm. and I think that the impact measurement side is, is one part of that, right. but the whole move to integrated reporting is becoming really big. And uh, all around the, in your home market of Hong Kong, Prue Bennett of BlackRock, yeah. uh, she's not anymore, I know, but uh, was talking regularly about the six capitals that boards get plenty of information about physical capital and financial capital, but very little about human capital, social capital, environmental capital, or intellectual capital. And many companies are trying to move to 
report on all of these through a combined social and financial report, and apparently the two best in New Zealand today are Sanford, the fishing company, and Zealandia, the not-for-profit. Hmm. Sorry, I'd just like to add something from a client perspective. I guess if we go back to the book analogy, which I really liked, mm. um, the reporting would be a lot more visual. It's actually going to, if the fund is, you know, if its objective is to, um, you know, improve the number of children in education or achieving standards, or if it's got some climate objectives, and those objectives will be stated and reported again so that the customer or the investor can actually see very transparently how that has improved or maybe not worked out. You know, obviously, people don't always get it right. Mm. So it will be very clear and very visual and very mm. transparent, because mm. it's all about transparency. That's great. All right, we had another question at the back there, I think. Hi. Kia ora. Uh, my name is Cyril Howard. I work for the Tyndall Foundation. The question to the panel is, I've listened to the corridor through most of this session. Um, where does relationships sit in this? I also want to talk uh, take a little bit of leverage off what Clive was talking about um, and Emily also spoke about the latest buzzword is impact investment. I want to leverage off what actually Clive was saying talking about cultural investment um, and we're talking about working in a space of trust uh, and there are multiple people sitting in this room, I'm just looking around fire over here, Joe and uh, there's Māori in here because he also talked about a project around, we're talking about scale there are over, over close to a thousand marae that sit in, now, in the whole of Aotearoa and talking about scale and impact of investments and that. But I've heard a lot about the investments and how we do this and how they do those. Where does relational impact <laughs> come into this corridor uh, when we go to invest these funds? Oh, sorry. Hope that makes sense. So I think, uh, so I only have limited capacity to talk about this and I think I look at Ian Short and Ranga Maori Price are doing an example of how that kind of thinking is, is happening. But I would just uh, say that one of the most fundamental elements of an impact investment that is often overlooked is the whole premise of co-design. So right at the commencement when you're determining what it is in fact that you're trying to achieve, that co-design uh, elements of talking to the end beneficiaries, for example, uh, and involving them in the how are we going to evidence our theory of change to making sure that that buy-in at the, the end gain end of the equation is there right at the commencement. So that's one part of it, and then the other part of it is, is in the intentionality, because the intentionality then expands to the all of the people that are, that are connected and associated with the impact investment uh, and making that sure that that is authentic. You, it's a really good question you raise, Cyril, because we can get distracted by this urgent need to try and get deals done and not pay attention to the glue that's going to hold it all together. <laughs> so uh, it's a really good question and to my mind the, the whole co-design element of determining the impact measurement and reporting process at the front end will go a long way towards resolving some of that. Can I just add that I, I agree completely. I think that one of the things we, we don't have enough of in New Zealand is the skills to put these deals together. Clive's done it a number of times. He'll tell you how long it takes. And getting that balance between risk 
return and impact is really difficult. You're not going to get high in all three. So you've got to work out what your, what your parameters are. But that whole thing of, of co-design and building the deals together and finding the people who can help structure the deals is, is really a challenge. Hmm. That's great. Thank you. Um, one of the fascinating things, because we've talked to quite a bit about the, um, I guess, the companies or the entities that would be invested into, but also thinking about the other side of the coin, which is the funders, and I know there's a number in the room, and I think sometimes people might say, look at my SIPO, look at my trust deed, it limits what I'm able to invest in. Um, do you have any thoughts for people who maybe that's, like they're on board with the concepts, but, but when they go to their board and propose it, they're going to get feedback or pushback saying, uh, it's difficult. Yeah, I think um, your SIPO is a living, breathing document, so it can be altered over time as your needs and requirements change. So I think, you know, um, don't be afraid to dust it off. Um, review what it says and if and if your organization's views and objectives and values and well, your values haven't changed but if the objectives and your plan of how you're going to achieve that has changed then don't be afraid to change it you know um, I know it's a lot of work and um, takes time but you know that is your cornerstone governance foundation and it's so important so for you to review that every two years I don't think would be unreasonable mm. that's great Anyone else have a comment? Yep. On this very stage two years ago, exactly, there was a similar number of people in this room, which again was many more than what we thought was going to turn up to a workshop on impact investment. And as a result of that, over 80 people put their name down to be followed up with, and one of the key results of that was the establishment of the National Advisory Board on Impact Investment, which is now just kind of getting some substance and, and has, a, has a way to go but it started officially and it specifically started because of some brave leadership that came out of this session exactly two years ago today. So I would encourage you who are here to exercise brave leadership. I totally agree, the fundamental issue in the SIPO is a living breathing document, your trustees, you can change it, just you can. Uh, so it's a team effort, I appreciate one person, is, you know, one of a board but that's what it requires. So if, if We've laid some really key building blocks as a result of what happened two years ago today, uh, or at the last summit, and I would like to think that if there was a fundamental change in a majority of the SIPOs around allocating resources for the right kind of impact investment deals that would be evident two years from now, that would be a fantastic next step. Mm. Emily, did you have a last comment? Yeah, um, and, and along with the, the um, suggestion to be a little bit braver in terms of changing that paradigm, I encourage you to think quite critically at what you're doing with your existing portfolios and investments because there's always ways to, to make those more impactful and greener than perhaps the tendency to be a little bit risk averse right now is, is, is sort of encouraging um, you to not think outside the box a little bit what, with what you're doing with your present operations. Um. Mm. That's great, thank you. Now I know there's going to be more questions out there, but we don't have time for them. But fortunately, we're about to have lunch, so there'll be plenty of time for conversation. Um, just some, a couple things to, to close off and end this. Um, I love what you said, Clive. You know, two years ago, something happened in a room and there was tangible results. Wouldn't it be great if, if later on we can look back at this 
event as well, and many of you go, that was the point where I thought more seriously about impact investing. So I'd encourage you to continue the conversations, continue looking into it. Um, one of the other things is that I've rec I'm recording this, so there will be both a video and also I've been doing a podcast called Seeds, so my plan is to put the audio of this up on that podcast. So be looking out for that so you can, um, hopefully it can go beyond this room and just the people that were here. Um, but I just want you to join me in thanking our panelists and thank you all for coming. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that session talking about impact investing. If you want to find out more, then check out the links in the show notes. And also maybe look back in Seeds, because I've done some interviews with people who are active in this area. In particular, have a listen to the one with Chris Simcock, as we talked about these types of things for about an hour. If you enjoyed the podcast, then also consider checking out some of the earlier episodes as well. Until next time!